You're listening to the Sunday podcast from LifePoint Church in Santan Valley, Arizona. We hope you're encouraged by today's message. For more information, visit us online at lifepointaz.com. Welcome. Good morning. Hey, so we are in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Go ahead, open up your Bible. This is a Sunday you're going to want to open your Bible because you're going to say, it doesn't say that. There is no way the Bible says that. Um, He's got to be making that up. And so you'll want to make sure I'm not making it up. I would open up your Bible today. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Uh, One of the most confusing slash just culturally offensive, I guess, uh, sections of scripture where Paul really just goes after some things in differences between the sexes, male and female. He's going to go after uh, misappropriation of the Lord's Supper, communion. And then he's going to talk about the order of things and how God created them. And so one of the things I want you to look at this morning is The entirety of chapter 11 is about surrender. Surrender. A gentleman told me after first service, it was really good, I got down and he just said, isn't the Lord's Supper really about surrender? And as I thought about all of chapter 11, all of chapter 11 is actually about surrender. And so if you remember, we're getting off of chapter 10, which was last week where Paul was talking about how he gives up the right to be paid, how he gives up the right to make money as an apostle and a teacher of the word, but he does it because it's his calling, it's what God has called him to do. He couldn't do anything else, and he does it so that there might not be any obstacle for any future believer in knowing who Christ was. Well, he ends that thought with what is chapter 11, verse 1, where he says, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. And then he begins a new thought in in verse 2 of chapter 11, and he's going to go after... um, coverings in the head and worship. And so it's funny because as I tried to write notes for this and uh, see commentaries and everything, just nothing, nothing worked to put it down. I kept reworking it. You can find every single view from very, very smart individuals with lots of initials after their name and lots of schooling who completely disagree on what is being said in uh, 1 Corinthians 11 here by Paul. And so as I read all of these views, and, and even views from people I really respect, and I've, I've used their commentaries in the past because I believe they're spot on, but this time you're looking and going, oh, I don't know. This got to a place where I'm just on my knees before the Lord saying, God, but by your grace go I in the subject, because we usually have more women here than men, and I feel that I could be taken out if I say anything <laughs> wrong, and you would never find me. I would be in a cornfield somewhere, and the ladies would go right on with their casserole making, and it would be bad. So, Lord, by your grace go I as we enter into uh, covering and headship in worship services or corporate worship. Verse 2, 1 Corinthians 11. I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the traditions just as I pass them on to you. Stop. Let's just take a moment. This is fantastic. Paul is being what we would call in 2018 salty, right? Any of the young people here know what I'm saying? If you're over 35, don't act like you do. I didn't know it until my son said, you're being salty, to which I went and looked it up, and that is a true thing. It means you're being snarky. 
to be salty. And Paul is being snarky here. He is saying, hey, Corinthians, I'm so glad you're listening to all the stuff I told you to do. Not, right, that's my generation where we said psych or not. Like, he's lying. He's like, no, you're actually not doing anything as I pass them on to you. And then he's going to jump into this idea of order and the way God has created things. And he says in verse 3, I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the, head of every, and the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It would be the same as having her head shaved. For, a woman, for if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well have her hair cut off. But if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, then she should cover her head. <laughs> Anybody want to come up here and teach this? No. So there's something really fascinating here. One is this. Notice the order in which Paul says, um, the head of every man is Christ, the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Why didn't he do it in ascending order? The head of woman is man, the head of man is Christ, the head of Christ is God. Wouldn't that have been sort of the logical way to do it? Do you think maybe Paul just missed it? Maybe he was just writing it down? Definitely not. Paul, everything Paul writes is intentional, even to the way he writes this verse. Where verse 10 comes, which we'll get to verse 10, is, is, is a way that Jewish rabbis would, would write where it's right in the middle of his thought and it helps explain what came before and the verses that just come afterwards. So it is very purposeful, the order in which he puts it, which seems sort of out of order. Man to Christ, woman to man, and then Christ to God. So what is the purpose what is the purpose of this whole section that we're about to delve into? It's about order. It's about the fact that when God created, he created with a specific order and purpose. It wasn't happenstance. It wasn't just do what looks right, do what feels good. God said, eh, we'll just see what happens and we'll throw it all together and whatever comes out, comes out. There was purpose and intentionality behind it. Everything the Father did has purpose and intentionality. And so what Paul is wanting to expose here is that in the culture and the time of the church at Corinth is they begin to sort of throw aside the cultural norms, not just Jewish norms, right, because many of these were Greeks, but cultural norms. In the culture and in the time, it was normal for uh, a woman to have her head covered when she was in a public and corporate gathering like that. Right, And it is said of a woman that her hair is her glory. We see that also multiple times throughout Scripture. And so Paul says because of this headship relationship, and when we talk about the head of something, we're also talking about the source, right? The word here, the word being used is the source. So if you talk about uh, the head of the river, you're talking about the source that feeds the life of the river. And so this is about source as well as understanding the order of things. So Look at how, where we jump in here. Seven. <clears throat> a man should not cover his head <clears throat> since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. See, that got better, right, ladies? <laughs> it's going to get worse, so that's why I had to point that part out right now. For woman is the glory of man. You've heard me say multiple times, um, 
Why is there order in sex? What, what is the whole thing about um, being married and, and uh, why does God care so much about it? It's because there's order. There's a purpose in the physical union between male and female. And in that purpose, we see the relationship and we understand God's relationship with us. That was the purpose of marriage. That's why it's instituted by God. It's, marriage is not instituted by man. There is an order in the way that things work that God has created them. And so when he says that you are made in God's image, and because we are made in God's image, mankind is the glory of God. And then woman being taken out of man is the glory of man. She is our glory. So in the same way that Christ laid down his life for man, Paul in Ephesians is going to call man to lay down his life for the woman. And here's where it gets difficult. Culturally, we cannot understand authority without hearing inferiority or superiority. You catch that? We look at somebody who has authority and we say, you're superior and I'm inferior. Part of it's cultural and part of it is just human nature to look and say, well, if I have to submit to what you want to do, then it makes me an inferior person. Paul says, there is nothing in the order of male-female that creates superior-inferior. In fact, look at Christ, whom is the body, and the Father, Yahweh, is the head. Is Christ inferior to the Father? We know he's not. The Gospels tell us that although being equal with God, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. He is equal. He is not an inferior being. He is a different part of the Trinity and the nature of God. But there's still position. There's still order. So how do we understand order and authority without falling into the mindset and the trap of one being superior and one being inferior? And what it comes down to is surrender. Surrender. You see, no matter where you're at, whether you are surrendering your life to the Lord or you're surrendering your will to your boss or as a pastor, I surrender my leadership of this church to the elder board who represents you or if you're the CEO of a company, you surrender your full authority to your board, right? The board, ultimately, in a large corporation, has the full authority. A CEO just runs it. All of life is about surrender. And what was going on in the Corinthian church is they begin to say, we don't need to surrender in this area anymore. This isn't something we need to do. In fact, I'm going to tie it back here in a moment to where we're at as a culture, but I want you to understand the word surrender here. And understand that what Paul is talking about is not a minimalization of women. In fact, nobody in the history of this world has done more for women than Jesus Christ. Nobody has brought their value up and their purpose up more than Jesus Christ. Even in civilized Rome and the greater uh, region that was Rome, women were still looked at as property. Women were still looked at as something that could be traded or gotten rid of. 
Christ came along and sat down with the Samaritan woman as a Jewish rabbi. He sat and had a conversation with the lady caught in adultery and said, go therefore, I do not condemn you, go and sin no more. He showed love and kindness and equality to women that the world had never seen. So when you hear lies about Christianity, about Jesus, that say that he is somebody who was a chauvinist or Christianity promotes this type of thing, it's disgusting and it's wrong. Have churches abused it? Have leadership abused it? Yes, absolutely. Man has done that in everything we can possibly think of. We have abused it and used it for our own purposes and will. But Christ and the message that Paul is passing along to the Corinthian church is not one to put women under the thumb of men, but to remind them that they have a unique job just as the men have a unique job. And what you'll see how he ends this thought is not that one is better than the other, but that they're complementary. Right? How good would your chair be without the legs? I mean, the seat and the back, that gets to actually touch you. What if the legs got jealous of the seat and the back and said, well, I don't get to touch the human, so I don't want to do my job anymore. I'm not as important. It's silly, right? Well, of course, without that, you'd be sitting on the floor. Your chair would fall apart. It wouldn't work. The two complement one another to create what they're supposed to do. There is an order in how they work together. Okay, let's keep going. For man did not come from woman, but woman came from man. Neither was man created for woman, but God saw man alone and said, this is not good, so woman was created for man. Here's verse 10 I was talking about. It is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her own head because of the angels. What? I'm sorry. I've been a pastor for a while. I followed the Lord. I've known Christ since I was six. What? Because of the angels? Nathan, take the trash out. The angel? No, the angels. That's not an excuse, Nathan. Go tuck the kids in. I can't. Uh, the angels. Because of the angels. So this verse, this single verse, is translated more than six different ways in six different uh, translations, NASB, NET, NIV, NRSV, the King James Version. They're all different. And what's wild is sometimes the words are different in a verse, but the meaning is the same. In these translations, the meaning is completely different. So just to show you how confusing this whole section of Scripture is, um, I believe the King James Version says, um, let's see, first... Authority over her own head. The King James Version says the power of the authority. The, um, the NRSV and the NASB uh, New American Standard Bible says that they um, have the authority over the symbol or the covering over their head. Well, now those are two different things. Because one, to say that you have the authority over her own head... Does that mean she has authority over her own headship, the source? Does that mean she has authority over her husband? Does that mean she has authority over what she does to herself? Or does she just have authority over the covering that she needs to put it on? Do you see what I mean? Two different things. It's not just different ways of saying the same thing. They mean two completely different things. And then, if it wasn't hard enough, remember, this is right in the center of his argument. Uh, it's the way that Paul is writing here. It ends with because of angels. Because of the angels, she has authority. That's tough. So what's being said? What's going on? The first thing is this. 
We see in Ephesians, we see in 1 Corinthians 4, and then we see again in 1 Peter that when we come together and worship corporately, we aren't just worshiping in front of our Father. We're worshiping, it says, to the powers and the principalities of the universe, to the angels. Go ahead, look those verses up. We worship to the angels. The angels gather together and enjoy our worship to their creator as well. And Paul is saying that when you gather together, have reverence for the fact that you aren't just worshiping in front of one another, but you're worshiping in front of celestial beings as well. It's sort of like this. Because some of these concepts here in, verse, in chapter 11 are cultural, right? Like the head covering. That was a cultural thing of the time. It showed, one, that you were married, that you were taken. It also meant you were protected by that man. And so if another man wanted to come and be with you or try to take you, which was a thing, um, he couldn't. Or at least if he was going to try to, there was going to be a fight because you were taken. That was what the covering said. So that part is cultural, the part that's not cultural is the order. That part's eternal, the headship, right? Man is head of the woman, as Christ is head of man, and the Lord is head of Christ. That part's, that's foundational. That just keeps on going throughout time. So let's try to understand this cultural idea of having a head covering while the men don't. It would be similar in our day and age if one of our worship singers up here was wearing a mini skirt and a tube top. Just go ahead, don't picture it, actually. Don't picture it, just... Yeah, I just thought about telling you to picture that. Don't. Picture me in that, and then that'll... that'll yeah, now you get it, right? Culturally, that'd be wrong. That would be wrong. Why? She's wearing clothes, what would be the problem? I'm wearing clothes, what would be the problem with that? The problem would be, in our culture, that's not even something you would go to the grocery store in. That's not something you would go to the mall. Well, maybe you might go to the mall in today's day and age in that. Because it's an inappropriate attire. It's inappropriate of becoming of a woman, right? And so what Paul is saying in their day and age for a woman to come in, he's saying you might as well have your head shaved, which was something that would be done to women who were adulterers, or it's something that the prostitutes in the town would do, or they wouldn't have their head covered at all as a way of saying, I'm available. And Paul's saying, why are you choosing to do this, right? That's cultural. This is a cultural thing, just as if, we had people up here dressed inappropriately. Hopefully, you and the elders would come and say, why are you allowing this? This is not okay. This is not okay. We're, we're, which is why, where the whole sort of dressing up comes from with church, right? Because we're here to show reverence to the Lord and because angels. <laughs> Verse 11. So now we're at the second half of this argument. I got to hurry because I still got to get to the Lord's Supper. Nevertheless, in the Lord... Woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also every man after that, guess what, guys? Born of woman. But everything comes from God. Someone was really excited about that fact. Yeah. yeah. I've heard it's not that fun. But all of it comes from God. So the, the purpose of this is, he goes through all of this order. He goes through the structure of things, reminds them, goes back to the Genesis account of headship, and then says, but at the end of the day, you are two people side by side, both representing the qualities of our creator. So stop um, 
fighting, stop arguing amongst one another, stop treating one another in such a way that is not two equal parts who do different jobs. Because at the end of the day, you both come from the Lord, for everything comes from the Lord. And then 13 through 16 is him just going back and doubling down. Judge for yourselves, is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Don't you know that in nature, man's hair is typically shorter and woman's hair is longer? Um, for it is her glory, for long hair is given to her as a covering. That is sort of a natural covering over the woman. If anyone wants to be contentious with this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. If you wish to disagree with me on this, I want no business to do with you. That's how he ends that. I have nothing to say to you. What I am giving you is foundational truth, right? This is how he ends that. And then, before I move on, I would be remiss if I didn't touch on this because I know some of you are thinking it. Are women allowed to speak in the church? Nobody was thinking it? Oh, good. I'll move on to the Last Supper. I thought for sure somebody would have been. So, Last Supper, the Lord's Supper. Is he going to? I don't know, Susan. Um, So long debated in the church, and again, as many documents, commentaries, doctorates on this subject for both sides, but here's how I see the scripture, here's how I see Paul's heart, here's how I see the heart of our Father. Look at verse 4 of chapter 11. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. Every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. What's this talking about? Is this talking about at home, in private, in your closet? No, this entire section is addressed at public corporate worship. And he does not say, if woman, he says, look, when the men are up front, they should not have their heads covered. When the women are up front praying and prophesying, they should have their heads covered. So if you're wondering about the whole thing, are women allowed to teach? Does God use women? Does God, uh, do women have authority to, pre uh, to speak on behalf of God? I think it's really clear they do. I think it's super clear that Paul doesn't say that they have to have their head covered and they have to be quiet. He says when they prophesy, culturally and based off of how your culture is going to look at them, they should have their head covered. Just like today, if a woman stands up here on stage and says something, she should not be wearing clothes that are inappropriate, nor honestly should I. Like if I was wearing the tube top and miniskirt, you should call me out on that. You should not be okay with it. Well, he's the pastor, and he's strange, right? Okay, I wanted to get to that, it's, and, and there's, you, we can argue on that, and you can show me the verse that says that women should not speak in the church, and then I'll show you contextually what Paul's talking about. We'll have a good time, just not right now, because we got to get on to the Lord's Supper. Verse 17, now, this is the harshest language that Paul uses in all of the New Testament. I want to say that again, because I want you to see, uh, and I want you to know, I'm not just... Um, I'm not just jumping out here and saying this to get your attention. This is literally the harshest language that Paul uses towards any people group in any of his letters to the churches, and he starts it off with this. In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and you know what, Corinthians? I believe it. Remember he started off that first part a little snarky? Hey, I'm glad you're listening to everything I told you to do. Not. 
This time, he, he's removed. He's gotten to this point of his letter, and he's just so disgusted. He's so embarrassed by the church at Corinth. He's so fed up with what they're doing. There's no snarkiness. He just jumps into it, and he says, uh, I have no praise for you. I have no praise for you. I am, di- I am disgusted by you, Corinth. I hear that there are divisions among you when we observe the Lord's Supper. And you know what? I believe it. I believe that you're actually doing that to one another. Verse 19, no doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. So then, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper you eat. For when you are eating and some of you go ahead with your own private suppers, as a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. So here's how they would do it. They would do communion, observe the Lord's Supper at the end of the teaching, right? Sort of like how we're going to do. But rather than a bread and juice, they would all bring a meal and basically potluck this thing. The Baptists got that right. I love old potlucks, right, where you bring the casserole (laughs) and and you put it on a big table and everyone just goes and fills their, their plate up with all sorts of amazing food. That was communion and that was... Um, that was their way of remembering and honoring what the Lord had done. But what, what's happening is the wealthy people are bringing their food and then they're sort of, they're coming over here and they, they've got all their fine meats and amazingly cooked food and fine wines and the poor people are over here going hungry because nobody's sharing food and they're getting drunk and their bellies are full and they're eating until they're sick. Paul says, what are you doing? The very thing that is meant to bring us together to unite us, you are using it to separate, having private suppers. Verse 22, don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Now he gets snarky. What are you doing coming and filling up on food for the Lord's Supper and not sharing it with other people? Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God that you would humiliate those who have nothing? Remember I said this is the harshest language in all of the scriptures towards that Paul uses. Hear those words for a minute. If, if we had received this letter from Paul and I was reading it to you. Do you despise the Lord your God that you would humiliate people who have nothing? Maybe that should be an edict for us. What shall I say to you? Should I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. For I received from the Lord what I passed on to you, that that the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. If you thought what Paul had said to this point was tough, he saved his best for last. Here we go. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, they eat and drink judgment upon themselves. That is why, that is why many among you are sick and weak and die and dead. That's what fallen asleep means, dead. 
You are dying because of how you are disrespecting the Lord's Supper. But if you were more discerning with regard to yourselves, we, he includes himself in this, and, and that's important, we would not be coming under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. Never, when he says nevertheless there, he's making this transi- transition saying, even though the discipline is happening, it does mean, not mean God is bad, it does not mean he's cruel, it does not mean he's unrighteous. Nevertheless, it is discipline for us that we might self-examine and turn around and go the other way. You catch that? This is purposeful. The sickness, the weakness, the death of your relative because of what you've been doing to communion, it serves a purpose to get you to turn from that way and go back. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather together to eat, you should all eat together. Anyone who is hungry, eat at home. That way, when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. When I come, I will give you further instructions. Okay, so the Lord's Supper. And I'll close on these four points with the Lord's Supper, and then we're going to partake of the Lord's Supper. And after reading this, I imagine there will be about 10 or 12 people who will actually come forward out of fear of drinking upon themselves and eating the Lord's judgment, thus being struck dead immediately. Maybe. The Lord's Supper does four things. The first thing it does is it connects us with our past. It connects us with that night. It connects us with the meal that Jesus and his disciples were celebrating. What was that meal? The Passover. They were celebrating the Passover. What is the Passover? The Passover is the meal that the Israelite people ate as they celebrated God delivering them from the king of Egypt, Pharaoh, and the slavery that they were in, right? They were told that they would slaughter a lamb, put the blood of the lamb on the doorpost of their home, and then eat the lamb, have unleavened bread and wine. They would have a meal, and that night the angel of death came, and if you didn't have the blood of the lamb on your doorpost, gone, dead. And so each year afterwards, the Israelite people celebrated the Passover. Death passed over them. Well, that event was a precursor, was a foreshadowing of what Christ would do, of what the Messiah would do, right? Isaiah got it. Isaiah talks about it and says that he will be a suffering servant. God's people missed it. They were expecting a conquering king to come and overthrow all of their problems. In fact, even the disciples were only 90% there on the night that uh, the Lord gave them, uh, on the night that he was betrayed, right, when they had that last supper. They were not quite there yet because even as Christ was doing it, They were confused by how it was going to work. We know this because Peter pulls out his sword and tries to cut off the air of one of the Roman guards who was about to take Jesus. Had Peter understood what needed to happen, he would not have done that, would he? But even Peter, right there walking alongside Christ, got to walk on water. Even he didn't fully understand what needed to be done. And so... When we partake of communion together, it connects us to the past. It reminds us that when Jesus died on that cross, he was the lamb. Here's what's wild about the Last Supper. In a traditional Jewish home, it would have been customary for them to do that. They would take the lamb, they would slaughter it, they would eat the lamb, have unleavened bread and wine. In the Last Supper, there is bread and there is wine, but there's no lamb. Why is that? Because Jesus was the lamb. Even his disciples missed that. 
They missed it because it was purposefully kept from them. We can't look at it and say, what morons? No, it was kept from them. The Bible tells us the mysteries of God's plan was revealed to us through Christ, but it was kept from them. First thing it does connects us to our path. Second thing it does is it ties our souls to God. Now, this is where we get into a lot of more. Remember, this whole chapter is full of arguments and division and theology. And this is where we get into uh, what is the nature of this connection with God when it comes to communion. The Catholics believe that the uh, bread and the wine turn into the physical, actual flesh and blood of Jesus Christ, right? That's the belief. And that, and that by partaking of it, you partake of him unto yourself and therefore partake salvation unto yourself when you receive communion, which is why they're so strict about who is able to take communion if you've ever been to, ever been to a Catholic mass. The Protestants have said over the years, no, it's symbolic uh, that when Jesus said, this is my body, he wasn't saying this is my literal body, he was saying, this represents my body and this represents my blood, right? So that's how the Protestants have looked at it. But um, I want to show you some problems with both of those views, okay? And then I'll show you where, where I stand. And like the last issue, we can argue about it offline. When the Catholics say Jesus said this is my body and he didn't say this is a symbol of my body, there's a bit of a problem with that because on the very night in which he was betrayed, the night that he spoke those words, his actual body was holding the bread. So his body was still here and it was holding the bread. It wasn't his body, it had to have. As he's showing the disciples, they're looking at it like, okay, we remember what you said out in the field, remember? When all of the people begin to gather around and say, I'm a disciple of Jesus, we love Jesus. You have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. I'm out, right? Like, okay, that wasn't cool. It was cool when he healed that lame guy, but the whole eating his flesh and drinking his blood thing, that's where I drew the line. Like, snake handling was fine. Ties were fine. Not that. Casserole's fine. So Jesus looks and you say, well, he said that there, right? He said that there. This is my flesh. You have to drink. eat my flesh and drink my blood. So what does it mean? This is my body. He must have been talking um, symbolically, right? That his body and his blood were all still intact, so he must have meant this represents my body. But, but there's a big problem with saying that you only have eternal life if you eat and drink the flesh and the blood of Jesus. Because now that's contingent on me doing something, that I, I need to go and eat and drink that in order to receive Christ, like as if Christ, again, this comes to that point where Christ did 99% and now I need to receive and eat his flesh and drink his blood in order to receive my salvation. That's the belief. And there's a problem with that because the New Testament says if you believe in him, it says if you receive him, if you look to him, you'll have eternal life. It says that multiple places. There's no mention about the bread and the cup, so what do we do? What do you do with John 6, 53 and 54, where Jesus tells his disciples and all those who are following him, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood if you wish to follow me. So everybody leaves and all that's left is the disciples and they look at him and they say, that was a pretty offensive statement you just made, Jesus. What are you talking about? What are you talking about? What does Jesus say? First of all, he's basically, this is what he says, and go ahead, you can open up your Bible, read it, John 53, 54, and the verses that follow. I'm talking about the flesh. No, I'm not talking about the flesh. The flesh means nothing. The words I have spoken are spirit, and they are life. 
They are life. Look it up. John 6, 53 to the end. Listen, guys. I said the flesh and the blood thing because you have to understand that the words that I speak, my very breath is life. What is Jesus? He is the logos, the word incarnate, John 1, 1. He is the word. What does he use when he is tempted in the garden? He uses the word. It is the very life. It is the breath. He says that when I leave, I will leave one with you, his spirit, which will what? Speak on behalf. What Jesus is trying to get across to his disciples is this connection that communion will bring between you and the Father. That, that it, the blood and the flesh of Christ have to be something that you partake into you, that you breathe into you, that brings life to you. The very words of Christ have to be something that you don't just believe in, but that have transformed and changed the way you live. You can believe in a lot of things and have them be wrong. You can believe in a lot of things and not have it change your life. But Jesus says, if you wish to be my disciples, you don't just believe in my words. You have to take my words into you like you would food and drink. You catch that? Now, I know there might be some debate on that, but that's what I see. That's how I see the Lord's Supper. To feed on the words. To understand what Jesus is promising in the Lord's Supper, we look at this word, remember, and this is sort of the final point to why I firmly believe that the bread and the juice do not take on the literal forms of blood and flesh that I'm eating. He doesn't, if he were to have just said, eat and drink, eat and drink the bread and juice, and it is my flesh and my blood, eat and drink. But he doesn't. He says what? Eat and drink in remembrance. Now, Oh, context, context, context. Remembrance. Remembrance in the English language is a little weak. When you think of remembrance, you think to recall. I remember that trip to the ski lodge. I remember the summer at the beach. I remember last Sunday's sermon. Anybody? Nope? Okay. I remember. I recall. The word used in Greek, remember, is actually the opposite of a word that we know as dismember which is kind of grotesque. Because when we think of dismember, we think of limbs and body, right? Arms and dismember. Remember is to take those things that have been dismembered and re-commune them. Re-bring them back together. So when he says, eat and drink in remembrance, he's saying, when you gather together, together as a community, which is a third point, when you gather together, do this in remembrance, in a remembering of the body of Christ, in a bringing together, because all week long, the world will be dismembering my body. It'll be dismembering my message in your life. It'll be dismembering my order of male and female. And so when you gather together, do this in remembrance of me. Take the bread and the juice unto yourself as life, as my words are life unto you in remembrance that there may be wholeness in the community and the body of Christ and a remembering. Wild, right? Wild when you see it beyond the face value of what it is. And so that's why Paul is so upset with the Corinthians, because that third point, that we would do this in community. And Paul said, the very thing that God 
used to unify you, that's communion, a common union, communion, you were using it to separate and to belittle and to humiliate people, which is why he saved such harsh judgment for them. How dare you humiliate the Lord this way? How dare you take the thing that Christ gave us to bring common union and tear the church apart with it? And if you have sin in your heart towards another brother, if you have a grudge, if you're harboring anger towards a brother or sister, do not come and partake of communion. Because how can you take the body and the blood, the very words, the very life of Christ into you if you're going to then harbor grudge, anger, hidden sin, and lies outside of you? It's false. He says when you do that, you literally bring the judgment of Christ into your body. So don't get mad at God. You brought it into you. Yeah, that was rough. Lastly, we'll close with this, bring the band up. It connects your life story to the future. And here's how. In Revelation, in Revelation, John writes, the angel said to me, write, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and he will be their God and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Behold, he says, I am making all things new. So the last supper, Christ says, remember this until the next one until the wedding supper of the Lamb. Because when that comes, the old order of things will be wiped away. The pain and the suffering, everything that you have pursued and gone through will be gone, and I will dwell among you, and you will dwell with me, and I will be your God. So do this in remembrance. You catch that now? Do you see the big picture of it now, the beauty of communion, the Lord's Supper? I do this, when we partake of this every week here at the end of the sermon, we do this in remembrance as a unifying thing for the believers who are here. And we don't just do it as as we remember our body, as we take in the word of God, but we also look forward towards the future. That there is coming a day when God will make all things new. And there is coming a time when we will dwell in his presence forever. But until that time comes, I will remember. I will remember. So as we prepare communion here, I want to give you a story that will help hopefully tie your mind to the physical act of the bread and the juice here. When I was back east, my uncle gave me his CBR 929, which is a motorcycle, those kind you lean over on, the fast ones. And so he gave a 21-year-old kid that bike and said, have fun. That was not smart. I almost died thrice, and by God's grace, I'm still here. But I drove all over Vermont and Connecticut, New Hampshire, Massachusetts, up into the lower half of Maine, and it was a dream. I mean, back roads, if you're from the East Coast, you know it's not like out here. There's winding roads and gorgeous rivers, and it was fall, and the leaves were falling, and I would stop in little coffee shops out in the middle of nowhere, and I'd get lost and have to try to find my way back. I'd drive really fast, too. 
You know, now, if I'm sitting outside or if I'm going for a walk or out in my back patio and I hear that sound of a high-performance motorcycle, not a Harley or any of those, those are great, but that sound, that high-revving sound of those bikes, it takes me back to those coffee shops and winding roads and the feel of the speed on my body as I hung on to that thing for life. And I remember, and it, and it doesn't just take me there, I can smell the exhaust, I can smell the wet roads and the leaves, and it brings me back. Did you know that's what God meant for his communion to be for his body? He meant for it to be that real for us, that when we partake of it, we, we go back to that place where we first met him. Right? When you, where you laid your life and you surrendered for the first time your will at his feet. And you remember the sweetness of what it was like knowing that there was hope in your life, that God was upholding you. That's the remembrance. That's the beauty of communion. It's why I didn't want it to just be once a month. It's why I wanted it to be something we held in honor and esteem. And so as Paul said, before we partake today, I want you to take a moment and just examine your hearts. If we could just lower the lights, create, I, I just, you go before the Lord. We have prayer partners who will be up at the front. And if you need to come and confess, if you need to come to the altar and confess beforehand, if you need prayer to uh, that there is just bitterness or hate or unforgiveness that you've held in your heart towards somebody, confess it before you come and take communion. Don't just sit in your seat and say, okay, I just won't take communion. Actually do something. Get up and confess it before the Lord. Let's pray and bless this now and ask God's spirit to move mightily in this room. Heavenly Father, Paul was teaching us surrender, Lord. He was teaching the Corinthians surrender. Surrender to your order, Lord, male and female. Surrender to your will, Lord. Surrender to your supper, Lord, to your community, Lord. Father, help us in that. Help those in this room who need to surrender towards a forgiving heart, who need to surrender towards repentance and give them the strength to do so. Bless this bread and bless this juice as we remember your body and your blood given to us that we might get to one day be in your presence fully. In Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead, you can get up. We have three stations in the back, three up front, and uh, we'll partake together and close in worship.